My name's uh, Paddy Hoy. I teach English. I don't teach English. I teach media <laughs> politics at Edge Hill University. And the book that I'm going to talk about today is The Shoot Annual from 1982. It was the book that changed my life in regards to football. Okay, it's, a, it's an interesting choice, Paddy. And obviously, you've been the host for these 10 by 10 podcasts. So I think it would be kind of remiss not to give you the chance to offer your choice of book. So, given you know all the various types of football literature for the chosen, why have you gone for Shoes Annual 1982? And what I suppose, why is that particular year significant? Um. Well, like me and you bonded, Danny, a couple of years ago over being children of Newtowns, you being Skem and me being Craig Avon. That's right, yeah. And Craig Avon is a Newtown 26, 27 miles south of Belfast. And it was a Newtown that never got finished. And in 1981, 1982, whenever I was just getting into football, I didn't really have very much else that kept me connected. With English football, uh, unfortunately, I was a Liverpool fan early on in my life before I found Celtic. Uh, lots, lots of lads I knew were. Which has been a recently disclosed secret. Oh, well, it's not really a secret, but you know, I, I, I waited until I your confidence before I revealed that bombshell. <laughs> and but if you think back to then, there wasn't really a lot of football on TV. You saw a match of the day. Um, it wasn't until eighty three, eighty four we got the first live games, the big match, and BBC got the live games. We could get RTE TV with a booster aerial, so we could get, it was live Saturday games. The same game that was beamed to Norway was, and Scandinavia it was the same game we got on RTE. So the reason why there are so many Norwegians that come to Liverpool and Everton is because at the same time uh, as they were getting it, we were getting the game as well. So my father, my dad was, was into motorbikes. He hated football, he hated Gaelic football. The only game, the only live game we saw every year was we religiously sat down to watch the All Ireland Gaelic football final on the yeah. third Sunday in September, and I I fell in love with football. I think largely because of the nineteen seventy nine FA Cup final, which was Man U Arsenal. Uh, Arsenal were leading two 0 with with five minutes to go. Man U came back and scored two. Only for Alan Sunderland to go up and score the winner in 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 the ninetieth minute, and I remember vividly being going into school. I was in P two in Miss Fitzsimons class at St Mary's Primary School in Banbridge, in County Down, where my dad taught, and just like talking to my mate Damien Leckie and saying, "Did you see that? It was just the most extraordinary thing." And apart from FA Cup final day and the odd international fixture. The only thing that we had to connect us to English football was Shoot Magazine. So I would get yeah. Shoot Magazine and Tiger, which was the comic, on a Wednesday or Thursday. And every year then, this hardback book came in as a stocking filler whenever Santa Claus came. And Father Christmas always left me a shoot annual for about four or five years. And I remember yeah. the, first, the one I really loved was, the first one I remember is the 1981 annual, which would have got Christmas 1980. And it has uh, Sammy McElroy on the front with a pair of Patrick boots. And I always loved Patrick football boots, you know, whenever Platini and they, they always had ball players wore them, like, you know. And then 82 was the year of the World Cup, obviously. And that was my most, the, my really formative moment in football was the 82 World Cup. And I just vividly 
remember like you know the lead up to that world cup there was um shoot covered the world cup and you know it's a brilliant it's a brilliant um one of the interviews i remember in it now was ray wilkins was always interviewed by shoot because obviously the journalists you know had him as a contact i remember him yeah. saying that the world cup was going to be a good world cup because um not many teams had world-class players anymore not since beckenbar and cruyff and people like that had retired yeah and i just thought bloody hell against the world cup where we're going to have maradona and brazil and <laughs> that was that was that was genuinely a brilliant world cup you know it was spain yes. it was that hot was, that was a good, good brazil team wasn't it kind of that was yeah. socrates and zico was still playing them 82 82 wasn't he i think midfield was midfield was uh, Socrates, uh, Falcao, Eder, and Zico. <laughs> not, not bad, is it? That's not bad, like you know. Um, but so the so the shoot annual was something that, and, and the shoot annual, unlike a shoot magazine, which would have got thrown out in our house, um, the annual lasted the whole year. So you might read the same fifty articles over and over again, but like yeah. those articles were imprinted in your brain because. At a time of scarcity, you now we live in a time of abundance. You know, my scholarship is a, my scholarship's largely about digital forms of fandom or digital forms of politics. Yeah, but, but that's because we live in an era of abundance. You know, there never have been more podcasts, more fan TV channels, more fanzines, more chatter, more forums. But mm -hmm. going back to living in a new time, which wasn't finished, where we didn't have a live football game, this hardback book was the only connection that we had with english football we only lived 100 miles away from liverpool or and you know eventually whenever when i started sporting celtic when i went to secondary school you know we were quite close but it was a full day and it was expensive it wasn't like you could hop on an easy jet so yeah. even though it was quite close culturally it was close geographically it was a million miles away and this comic or this magazine that was designed to be read by people from the age of eight to 16 was just our our gateway to this wonderful world of football. And I think obviously you kind of you hit on that contrast between you know the contemporary period of abundance. When we're talking about football, we're just talking about information and access to information generally in society. So looking back, obviously you're kind of nostalgic for that that kind of scarcity in some ways. Is that because of the kind of is the kind of the mystique? That that kind of conjured up that you know you only got these kind of small snippets of information that came through on a on a monthly basis or you know in, in this case on, on an annual basis so you kind of cherished that a little bit more than what you might do you know some kind of more throwaway some information that we might be able to get now is that yeah yeah exactly is that, is that what it is is it, is it kind of a is it nostalgia kind of? Oh, it's definitely nostalgia is the reason why. I mean, that, that book is, those those shoot annuals. And I used to always buy old shoot magazines at the Cub Scout Jumble Sale. So I bought yeah. old shoots and old NMEs when I was old enough to get into music, which was, you know, about 10 or 11, 12, 13, I got into music really seriously. And so, and, our, and the Scouts that I was in, the uh, in Craig Avon, they used to have a Jumble Sale. And so I used to hoover up any football magazines and any old music magazines that I could. Or music papers because there were four music papers then as well so you know fast forward a bit dan i'll answer the question in a second but fast forward to like 1988-89 when manchester is happening yeah manchester was only up the road for you and manchester was probably somewhere quite normal you could get to it 
I couldn't get to the hacienda. These places became almost mythical in in my imagination. And the first time I walked up London Road to get into see Celtic was like a genuinely affecting moment for me because this was something I dreamt about. And 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 it's whenever I see Liverpool fans, you know, particularly, you know, you were quite lucky being from Scam because. And, and your dad's an Evertonian and you were going the games. So it was close enough. And, you know, and basically what, what, what were you like 50,000 Scousers transplanted from Scotland road and put on the side of a motorway in West Lancashire. So you had that Liverpoolian culture there. And I get really angry with Liverpool fans, particularly, you know, people on the rattle or, or those forums where you have to prove your Scouse purity that, um, you know, you have to show up. You have to have a picture of a purple wheelie bin as your icon to prove just how scouse you are. Yeah. I get really upset whenever people complain about out of town fans diluting the atmosphere, because what they don't see is that there are lads from Craigavon or Straban or from Derry or Belfast, Lisburn, from Dublin, from Westmead, from Athlone or from Galway, yeah. for whom the act, the simple act of walking up Breck Road, is just huge for them. They they dream about it. And they and the yeah. love saying things like boss and going to home back for a pie because they dream about this. And there's genuinely lads I know whose entire life is is based around saving enough, enough money to go to Glasgow or Liverpool. And they yeah. really have to work hard for being fans. And usually their gateway, certainly if you're my age is 46, their gateway would have been Shoot Magazine or something like that. That's where they started dreaming about going the game. But isn't it, I think, when you kind of, Comparing those two periods, and obviously you still had fans, you know, travelling from beyond the kind of immediate vicinity of clubs, you know, particularly the bigger clubs to kind of go and watch football. But isn't the difference if you know if you compare in the shoot annual that gave you an insight into into I suppose a little bit of the national football culture, but mainly I think I think if you, if you look at the, 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 the topic of the book, the focus of those shoot annuals and that those type of periodicals was the players. Yeah. If you compare that now to the various types of different football media, the focus isn't all, you know, is obviously still a lot on, on, you know, big superstar players and teams, but it's much more on fans themselves. So you can gain, you know, it's much easier to gain an insight into football culture and the football culture of you know national football cultures and football culture of particular clubs than it was then I think you know you said in the past that that kind of oral communication of football culture is much more prevalent in the past because you had to be there you had to yeah, know yeah. people you had to be told whereas now you can access them things kind of remotely can't you and you can learn quite a lot about as say, you know, the particular football cultures of the club you're interested in from hundreds, thousands of miles away. And that, that's a big, that's a big shift, isn't it? Well, I've, I've re-bought <laughs> um, the shoot annual. I'm waiting for it to come because when I started thinking about this, I thought I'll, I'll get it again. But there's obviously, as with anything involving football and nostalgia, there's bits of eBay and bits of WordPress <laughs> and Blogger where people have recreated these things. And if you and if you look at those shoot magazines, you see that they are, as you're saying, incredibly player focused. And having worked in journalism before I, I started teaching in, in, in universities, and having worked in on you know, on the sports desk of a of a big newspaper like the Liverpool Echo, um 
you get to see what's really going on and you realize actually that what's happening here is that there's a there are enterprising journalists who maybe have a contact book because in the old days we had a contact book not a phone with about yeah. 50 players names in it and yeah. the players are talking to us the teenager or the or the 10 year old through this cultural intermediary who's this journalist so you get these features on like you know uh Danny McGrain's Tartan Talk. Remember, if you were a Celtic or Rangers fan, or just or supported, you know, Aberdeen or Dundee United, because you happened to get into them then in Northern Ireland, you were even less well served because if you could get the Daily yeah. Record, that was the only paper you could get was a Daily Record. So the only Scottish football we got was like three minutes on Football Focus on a Saturday, or if you yeah. lived up. I know people who used to drive to the north coast of Antrim and go to people's houses because they got BBC Scotland and they can get like sports thing and uh, Scottish football on TV, and these videos would get passed around. So, like, in 85, yeah. whenever Davy Proven scores the winner for us against in the Scottish Cup final, you know what? That, that we had to wait to the following Saturday on Football Focus to see that. So, <laughs> Shoot was fulfilling a role, which was, you know, that, that the players, if they wanted to speak to us in a time of, 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 of fam- you know, it was a, t- a time where it was starvation almost, you need to have a culture intermediary. Now, of course, the first thing is is that if a player wants to speak to us, they just do it now through Instagram. Yeah. And we get access, we get a curated access into, the, you know, the likes of Paul Pogba, we get a heavily curated access into his or Cristiano Ronaldo's life. That's the first thing. But to also to answer your question, yeah, you know, if I wanted to know a song, I didn't come from a Republican family, so there was no rebel music in our house. So I didn't know, the first time I went to see Celtic, I didn't know any rebel songs because it was this wee middle-class boy whose parents were teachers who didn't want them to hear any of that stuff. So I had to get onto a bus and learn these songs on a bus. Now, if I want to know the chant Bye Bye Rangers or I want to know the Stuart Armstrong song or any of the songs that that the Green Brigade do, I literally just switch on Twitter, go to the Celtic Wiki, go to the Green Brigade website, the lyrics and everything are going to be there. And I can do that from Australia or Peru or Timbuktu or anywhere. And that, yeah. that, as you said, the oral communication of fan culture, which can be very localised. Think about somewhere as you know, crazily idiosyncratic as Liverpool. You know, I remember uh, Tony Barrett telling me a funny story. No, Gareth Roberts, Robbo from the Anfield Rap, telling me a funny story that he turned up for the Spirit of Shankly bus once. And Tony Barrett, who's now the fan, the supporter liaison officer at Liverpool, now former journalist, Looked at him and went, You're not seriously going to try and get onto the Spirit of Shankly bus and the pair of Pumas? Because <laughs> he had the wrong brand of trainer on. Yeah. Fast forward, Rubble was telling me in the in the research I'm doing for this new book that he was in a in a, a ballroom in Australia, in Melbourne, and there were nine hundred and fifty Liverpudlians in the room, all Australians, very few of the Maxpats. All of them were in Fred Perry's, all of them were in limited edition Adidas Munich or or whatever was in at that time. And the culture and the fashion, the casuals fashion, that's constantly evolving in many ways in Liverpool. They had access to it straight away. Yeah, so it's, I think that's a big shift. And kind of on that is, I suppose one of the other things, kind of comparing, you know, kind of shoot of the early 80s to, you know, football, fan media, you know what I call it now, is the market is completely different, if you want to call it a market, in that, you know, shoot was marketed and aimed at children, you know, let's face it, young yeah, yeah. boys, to, to maybe early teenage boys, 
and now that you know that carried on you know well into the 90s and then we begin to see that slightly change but now you know much obviously there's there's a there's a proliferation of different types of media on obviously different markets but i would say the mainstream market is probably aimed at you know from you know 22 22 year olds up the the, the, mar- the market is changing and who's actually consuming this type of media and much of it isn't aimed at kind of you know younger you know children or younger people is it so all it's aimed at adults yeah, yeah, yeah. I, think that, I think that's a big a big change as well yeah my my <laughs> nephew's my nephew's 10 he lives in uh hollywood outside just outside belfast in the north down uh and for you know, and it's a really interesting thing about why people in Northern Ireland support the teams that they do. Neither his parents, neither my sister or my brother-in-law, are into football at all. Very sporty, but not into football. And our Killian has decided he's going to support Tottenham because Harry Kane happened to be the successful player when he started yeah. thinking about football when he was eight a couple of years ago. And so I subscribe to Match of the Day magazine for him. And he's 10, but he's a great reader, very voracious reader, like, you know, and very intelligent lad. And I said, is Match of the Day magazine still okay for you? Do you want to maybe go for 442 or, you know, one of the world soccer or something like that? You know, he said, no, I'm okay. I'm, I'm still okay with Match of the Day magazine. And in fact, Cormac, who's his brother, who's seven, he reads it as well. And I think that the interesting thing about, about that type of magazine for those kids now is that it probably doesn't act as a gateway drug into 442 or when Saturday comes or something like that. It actually acts as a gateway drug into TV and Instagram and YouTube. And so they're they're as interested in, you know, those people who've got Instagram or or uh, YouTube channels doing tricks. So, you know, the fact yeah. that YouTube is littered with fellas who are, you know, doing keepy-uppies or pinging balls yeah. into the top corner and all those types of you-know-the-drill style kind of yeah. challenges that are popularized by Soccer AM. Actually, maybe maybe Soccer AM is much more revolutionary. I don't think I agree with it, but I'm saying maybe its influence has been under underestimated. That actually the football magazine, the shoot and the stuff, is a gateway drug for stuff like Soccer AM and that type of content than it is for newspapers or even Sky TV. Yeah, I suppose, you know, a kind of antecedent to soccer AM is maybe, you know, fancy football. Yeah. Kind of, you know, you know, it's t- taking a kind of sideways look at football. And I kind of, that's what I say, the, the, the focus is shifted. And I look at kind of a website and a media enterprise, like kind of Copper 90, where the focus is not, you know, the whole the whole kind of strap line of it is that it's more than 90 minutes. It's actually, folks, it's not what happened on the pitch. It's what in the stands, what the fans are doing, the wider cultures of it, where football kind of sits in society. And that that kind of um, kind of football media has kind of exploded, isn't it, over the last five to ten years? Well, suppose- what, what, what's driving that? What's- well, I think Stuart Cosgrove uh, hit the nail on the head in the on the on the podcast that I did with him uh, a couple of weeks ago or last week, um, and he said like you know as the barriers to access to the market, i.e. production costs, have yeah. tumbled in recent years, then that has meant that exponentially many more people have 
had the ability to generate their own materials. So we used to, you know, quite rightly, you know, people like, you know, Haynes and Giulianotti and, uh, and Redhead and all those people reified the football fanzine. I always thought the football fanzine was a much more marginal pursuit than it was than it's given credit for in 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 football scholarship. I think actually the number of people who actually buy fans fanzines and did fanzines was relatively small, really. Yeah. But in the modern era, because if you have a smartphone with a camera, uh, you've got and a voice recorder. You've got the ability to put your own radio program on or your own TV program. And because it doesn't cost you anything, you don't really have to make any profit off it for it to be viable. So, you know, with a fanzine, to keep a fanzine going, you had to sell enough copies to be able to justify your print costs. Nobody's, yeah. no, nobody's, very few people really make a business out of it, you know, and, and the number of people who do is a really small number of people. But now if, you know, I listen to half a dozen Celtic podcasts, and, you know, if you just want to sit around Skype talking to people and sticking it out and don't really care about how many people are listening, then you can. It's brilliant. You know what? That's the, the great thing about the current era is that, well, it's good and bad sides. One good side yeah. is, is that me and you can sit, you know, talking nonsense like this on Skype and bang it out because you've got somebody's far far people who are as far far thinking as 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 Dan Parnell and Paul Widop and and you people who yeah. started the collective the downside i think is is that there's never been more of this sort of stuff and maybe the quality is the problem that one of the things is going to lead to a shakeout if there is going to be a shakeout is quality content you know mm. where i think there's I, I don't think there's ever been better content i hate that word anyway but there's been never been better material if you think about nutmeg magazine done by daniel gray up in scotland that's just a phenomenal thing like you know a very you know sophisticated look at scottish football culture largely ignoring both celtic and rangers yeah there's, 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 there's interesting, I suppose there's two kind of parallel, if you think about kind of football, you know, the way football's developed over the last 30, 30, 35 years, you know, certainly since the kind of breakaway of the Premier League, you know, the dominant current in football scholarship is on the kind of commercialising, commercialisation, commodification, gentrification of football. And you know, concentration of power, you know, in, in, amongst a smaller group of clubs, and that's that's obviously apparent, and you know, I think that I think that's not particularly controversial. But at the same time, you've got this kind of parallel thing happening amongst football fandom, and as you say, the production of football media, where the marginal costs of production have been driven down so far because of all the change in society. You've got this kind of democratisation, haven't you? Of, yeah, yeah. Uh, the information in football kind of happening at, at, at the same time, and maybe there's we've not really kind of thought about or kind of analysed this dynamic in as much depth as we could do. You know, you've got in one sense, you know, a kind of full tilt capitalist enterprise in terms of football, but then you've got this. Reminds me of the Paul Mason book, kind of post-capitalism, you know, kind of this zero cost of information. Yeah. People aren't prepared um, to pay for information as they, as they want, where they expect a free 
people are producing it for free, as you say, not everyone's expecting to generate the profits of it. So you've got you've got these kind of almost two parallel worlds kind of within, you know, football at the moment. And there are people who the people who straddle both as well, Dan. Like you, so you think about well. I think one of the one of the big things is that a way of explaining that sociologically also means that people like me and you who were brought up on estates, like listen, my man and dad were teachers, so I'm not playing the kind of working class card at all. But people who were brought up on estates, um, who didn't go to university, the generation before, yeah, have do go to university, and they are generally better educated literacy le- literacy levels both in terms of how we write or speak and actually the kind of technological literacy that's required to to develop project products like that are the, the, these these are in themselves products of this the, the, this change in education that you know I remember reading um, fever pitch in 1993 and yeah. the lad I was living with uh, sharing a house with was a sky lad who's a journalist now and I remember him sneering at it, like, you know, ah, oh, middle class shite, you know. That's and and that, that that's not the way people of our class should be right. We don't talk about football like that, you know what? That's nonsense, like you know. Fast yeah. forward, what's that now? Twenty seven or 20, 25, 26 years, and that's the dominant mode of expression around football because people have got better media literacy. But they've also got you know a, a, a more analytical approach to the experience that they have in the game because perhaps you know there are many more books about football that explore the, the football experience away from the Sky TV experience, away from that kind of mediated experience where you know you're you know you're told that this is the most important thing. Actually, what we've seen to explore in that space, that fan-generated space is the kind of stuff that goes along with football, whether it's fashion or whether it's music or, you know, heaven forbid, you know, food or pubs or or all, all the stuff that, 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 that football is, that comes as part of the football package, have come under the microscope. But I also think, so you've got that, as you say, you've got this really kind of crazy, out of control, hyper-capitalist model in terms of broadcasting and in terms of gentrification and ticket prices and all of that. And then you've got this, on the other hand, people who are just doing it for enthusiasm's sake. But I think there's a really interesting thing that's also happened, which is like how fans are turning this into their jobs as well. You know, you've got yeah. the Anfield rap. There's a lad called Paul John Dykes up in Glasgow who runs the a Celtic State of Mind podcast, who puts out books, he makes documentaries, he runs a live match day event, which is effectively a Celtic chat show, which is in a pub mm-hmm. just before kickoff. And... There's this, this really interesting way that football has kind of expanded into all the kind of cracks and crevices of modern life. You know, Zygmunt Bauman talks about this liquid fluid modernity, where yeah. this this kind of where everything fits into expands into all the different niches. And I think yeah. what we're really seeing is just the extent to which football was part of the fabric of the nation that it probably wasn't reflected very well 25 years ago and it's taken a generation of of women and men for whom football did play that role to actually express how massive football was in the culture of the nation yeah so it's probably it's kind of moved from being very implicit in terms of the kind of the cultural fabric of everyday life to you know it's explicitly defined commentated on narrated in a way you know 
just not seen before. Um, I'll give you an example, Dan. Whenever, you know, I've always been fascinated by football boots. I never was much of a player. I played a lot, um, but I was never that good, like, you know. But I was always fascinated by football boots, mainly because my man and dad were kind of, they were uh, very good with money, shall we say, you know. And my mum was brought up in the country with very little money, so she didn't really, you know, when I never got a pair of Adidas Gazelles and I never got a pair of, you know, Adidas Kick, and I never got a pair of the... Uh, the uh, Nike Euro Strike that Tommy Burns wore. So I've spent the best part of the last 35 years looking at vintage football boots online. And whenever I was a journalist, one of the jobs I did was the sports editor of the Birkenhead News. And I had to follow Tramme. And every back page of the paper that I did, I always made sure that the player in focus, you could see his boots. Because in my mind, there was going to be a wee lad somewhere in Prenton or Tranmere or wherever it was who was going to cut that out and put it on his wall. Yeah. And football isn't just about a ball being kicked. It's about looking at like Sammy McElroy's Patrick's on the front of the 1981 shoot annual. It's about you know looking through the paper and seeing Tommy Burns and, and Charlie Nicholas wearing those Nike boots and wanting to wear them. And, and so... Football is more than just about the experience or just going to the match. Football was like, you know, as Aunt, I was said this to Aunt May whenever we were doing his his uh, ten by ten on on a fever pitch. The first page of fever pitch is his his girlfriend or his wife asks Nick Hornby, "What are you thinking about?" And he says, "I'd like the lighter and say I was thinking about Milan Kundera or Gabriel Garcia Marquez or a really important book, but really I was thinking about football." And actually, do you know if we were being honest? You could ask me at almost any stage of any day what I'm doing. And really, I'm probably just thinking about Celtic or Diego Maradona or the 82 World Cup. Yeah, uh, maybe maybe that's what kind of the shoot annual did. It kind of made that kind of fetishization of objects exactly. kind of legitimate. And, you know, the things that you say you kind of covered. And... You know, I'd like to say I've grown out of these things, but <laughs> I look at Duncan Ferguson and I think maybe I should get a, maybe I should get a, a sweatband. <laughs> so it kind of, I suppose, it kind of, I suppose, you know, what thing you're saying about kind of football, it allows us to fetishize things, whether it's football boots or trainers or, or football tops or whatever it is, and not feel as grubby. And kind of, you know, as consumerist <laughs> as you might do about other things, you know, mm-hmm. we, we, it's part of our authentic experience and our authentic identity. So therefore, therefore, it's okay. Maybe that's maybe that's that's why those kind of shoot annuals and what they kind of to and so forth and still kind of place. But it's also a thing about it's also a thing about childhood, Danny. Which is there was a brilliant documentary about uh, Nick Hornby's work, um, which was on BBC Two. It might be in an arena. I tried to find it again recently, and it's not there. I've got it in a videotape up the stairs. I have to buy myself a video. But uh, Nick Hornby says that, that um, not Nick Hornby, Nick Hancock uh, yeah. is interviewed for it as one of the talking heads, and he says when he goes to a wedding and they do that second, the second reading that you, people most people usually choose is St Paul, and and there's this bit and the bit where he says, uh, and when as a child I like childish things, and yeah. when I became an adult I put away childish things. And Nick yeah. Hancock says. No, no. <laughs> Football for me as a forty-six-year-old father of one with a mortgage and a, you know, and a, and a PhD and a book and a job in a university. 
allows me to forget all of those responsibilities and allows me to be that eight-year-old boy again. And I think that I think I genuinely think that that was the last time I was truly worry-free. You know, I was brought yeah. up in the, I was brought up in a civil war. The area I was, the area I was brought up in was called the Murder Triangle. You know, you yeah. didn't hear Barry Manilow singing about that one, did you? <laughs> and the, that to be worry-free was just to be able to dream about football, to dream about being in a in a ground, or to dream about yeah. owning a pair of Adidas. Adidas World Cups. By the way, looking through old shoot magazines, footballers generally just wore Adidas World Cup. The odd freak wore Puma Kings, and like there was real freaks like Enlin Hughes who wore Golas. But like everybody yeah. seemed to wear Adidas World Cups. Just what knowing what an Adidas World Cup was takes me back to when I was six or seven and going into Misfit Simon's class as a P two, and I think that's enormously comforting for me. Yeah, and I think that yeah, I think. I think you kind of you're absolutely you kind of right in that that link back to childhood and, and kind of and kind of say that kind of freedom, yeah. So I think that's I think you kind of nailed it. Um, I think that's a good positive note to 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 end on, Paddy. I think you've done a sterling job of making the case for the shoot annual of 1982. What I suppose what's the, to finish on what what's the if you can remember, what was the, the kind of best feature in it? What was your kind of favourite part? Of I can tell you now. I can tell you now because I've got I've got the contents on my thing, on my desktop here. Sorry, and uh, the best feature for me was the World Cup highlights, which was telling you where the World Cup was going to be held that year. And again, that World yeah. Cup was the one that really exploded my mind because you saw, I think that was a was that that was the first of the big World Cups movie. And so far as it was a thirty two team World Cup, was it? But uh, and, and and the feature directly after the World Cup highlights was Celtic heading for new glory, and that was the first time I thought, oh wow, you know, Ben McNeil's team, oh it was just brilliant, unbelievable. I was just like, I had an old uncle Jared who came over from Glasgow, who had emigrated, he let moved from Portadown to Glasgow, drive a bus in the forties, and he brought me Celtic stuff like pennants and and books back. And like just seeing Celtic and shoot validated it. Yeah, there we are. There we are. The best thing about the shoot nineteen eighty two annual is the picture on the inside the shoot annual, pages two and three, were a big double page spread with the contents. And there's a picture of uh, Graham Sunis in the Hitachi top and Brian Robson playing for West Brom. And Brian Robson's got a moustache and a perm. <laughs> what an image. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, cheers, Paddy, and um, you know, thanks for doing this. And obviously, speaking on Arsenal, Vic, I just want to say, you know, thanks for doing all the 10 by 10 podcasts. I think it's been brilliant, and um, I think everyone's enjoyed it. Danny, I'm, yeah. an, I'm an Irish man, of a, I'm an Irish Catholic man of a certain age. I can't take praise like that, okay? <laughs> <laughs>